It's beginning to look a lot like that holiday season, which means it's that time of the year where you start making a list and checking it twice and realise that you, your friends and family have got way too much crap in your lives. So, this festive season, gift yourself or someone you love a monthly or annual subscription to the Storymakers Institute, your front row pass to the world's most intriguing storytellers. Receive new episodes of the show every week and your own premium feed with extended full-length episodes only for paid subscribers. To set up your subscription, just visit thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com forward slash subscribe. Happy holidays. Hi there, and welcome to the Storymakers Institute, your front row pass to the world's most intriguing storytellers. And this week, say hello to Canadian novelist, essayist, and enemy of boredom, Stephen Marsh. Now, earlier in 2023, Stephen collaborated with Artificial Intelligence on the first AI-generated novel reviewed in the New York Times called Death of an Author, a groundbreaking experiment in a meta-world of man meets machine. And in this episode of the Storymakers Institute, I sit down with Stephen to talk about the process behind writing this new AI-generated novel. We talk about how paranoid literary and cultural circles are reacting to its use, and we're going to hear some pretty surprising thoughts on the evolving relationship between artificial intelligence and human creativity. If you think you know AI, think again. All right, Stephen, welcome to the Storymakers Institute. Pleasure. Pleasure to be with you. Your beautiful novella, Death of an Author. I don't know if I can describe it as your. Maybe it's a it's your plus uh, plus a, a, another collaborator who uh, goes by the name of Aidan Marshine. Tell me about the genesis of this novella. I've been sort of working on AI-generated uh, fiction for quite a long, or really, not really AI-generated, algorithmically-generated fiction from about 2017 on. So I published my first short story that was algorithmically generated for Wired in 2017. Uh, it was called Twinkle Twinkle. And it was, I, I mean, I had to consult a computer scientist at U of T. He built a um, special program for me called Sci-Fi Q, and I used it to generate a science fiction story. But that was before the Transformer and before really the great leap forward in AI. And then in February of this year, Jacob uh, Weisberg of Pushkin called me and said, hey, do you want to write an AI-generated novel? And I said, yes, let's do it. Because I've been I've been fooling around with this stuff for a long time, and it seemed like the great leap forward. And then we sort of worked out the parameters of what that would look like, and I wrote it over the next two months, two, two or three months. And when you say write, what does that creative process look like? Well, it was quite elaborate at, at that point. I mean, you know, it's funny because ChatGPT has gotten so much worse and so much more banal. It's interesting. It, it was kind of a, I did have the right moment to use it because it was a ChatGPT, it was GPT-4 that I was using mainly. And I would, um, you know, I'd already, because I'd been doing this for a long time, I knew that AI was not good at generating plot, right? Like it's not, it's not a plot. It's not very good at generating plot mechanics. I think we've all been there. Yeah. I mean, like, it's, <laughs> like if you're getting your right in a weak moment for plot from ChatGPT, <laughs> like it's probably not going to be a very good um, piece of work. So I, I had very clear, I had a very clear plot that I worked out. Um, and then I would take sections and input very specific instructions into GPT-4 on levels of grammar, levels of syntax, levels of style, um, levels of 
uh, every everything you can imagine, it would then generate the text. I would then take it and put it into another program called PseudoWrite, which is a, a stochastic writing instrument that allows you to, you know, you just take it and say, make it shorter, make it longer. And they have a customized button that says, hmm. make it sound like Ernest Hemingway or make it sound like F. Scott Fitzgerald or, may, or whatever you want, like whatever you can think of. And then by, by fooling around with that, I would get to something pretty good. And of course, if I didn't like it, I would just keep hitting the refresh button until I got what I liked. Um, I would take that and put it in. Now, you know, we decided, uh, Jacob and I, that the way that we would do this, you know, we, it would be a thriller, right? Like it would be like, it would, it would not, or a detective story, really. So it would have, it would have plot, heavy on plot, actually. And it would be because, you know, it's very, it's actually very easy to get um, artificial intelligence to do something lyrical. People had done it before. I certainly had done it before. Like the short stories I published, it's very easy to get it to do a, a love story or something like that. But to get it to do something that actually you want to read or you're compelled to read that you that has sequences in it, very different kettle of fish from a uh, from a writing point of view. Like Raymond Chandler, like he'll have great long muscular passage of prose that are pretty basic, and then every now and then he'll have like a great line in one of his books. He has a line that's like, "It was a blonde, the kind of blonde to make a bishop kick a hole through a stained glass window." And so I wanted, <laughs> I wanted great lines like that. And so to do that, I used a another program called Cohere, which was in Toronto, a program where I would ask it to write a metaphor. And then I would train it on other examples of metaphors, and then I would have it generate metaphors until I got one that I liked, right? And so that was a, so that was a, that was a sort of separate process from the main process of writing. But uh, um, you know, the best lines in the book came from Cohere. <laughs> I was going to say the best lines came from me, but no, no, no. Well, <laughs> it's, it's technically ninety-five percent AI generated, but that's only because I didn't want to have like if I needed to change a he to a, the name of the person or like add a he said like I didn't want to have to recombinate the whole thing just to get like mm. these tiny little details. So that, I mean, I changed little things like that, but otherwise, it is really computer generated. And. Who is Aiden Machine? Like, do, does he have, or does he, 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 I guess, does, or does it have a point of view? Well, um, no. De I, like, here's the thing um, that is very hard for everyone to understand, and very hard for me to understand, is that um, I am 100% the maker of this work. Like, there is no, like, Aiden Machine is a pseudonym for me um, because I am, I am the maker of this work. I am in total control of this work. Um, on the other hand, uh, I didn't write any of it, right? And so, like, what we think of as an author is actually, like, I didn't make the words. I made the work, but I didn't make the words. Um, this is, um, when, I, when I did it, that, that contradiction seemed totally incomprehensible to people. I think it's already starting to become a bit more normal, just the same way that a photographer makes an image, but they don't do anything to make the image, right? Like they would just use a machine to render that image. Um, of course, with language, we're a little, it's more easy to get freaked out about language. But but I would say that the thing about, um, I would say like 20 or 30 times, I felt like I was pushing up against something other than myself. And those were obviously the most exciting moments in the, in the creative process. 
Um, but so you can almost feel there was some, some, someone else, something else that's well, just like, that's a really interesting way to think of things. And I've never thought of things like that. And I've never read of anything like that, but you know, I mean, one of the, um, AI guys that I talk to a lot, he talks to go players, the Japanese game go, and there's a bunch of them that just like to watch AI play go against each other because it's not in any way like a human would play go but it is totally sensible way to play go. And so that's like a, as they described it, it's like an alien making music. And that's sort of what it felt like. Like you're pushing up against like an alien able to make language. I wanted to track back. Give me a little water. I'm going to start that again. I know my personality. It takes your breath away. Doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, like, like it just makes my eyes water. I'm just, I can't speak. I'm just so, I'm choked up by the, uh, <laughs> the experience. I wanted to wind back to, uh, to something that you sort of flew past, which is uh, a little earlier when you said that a lot of chat GPT based instructional, uh, um, output now is banal. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that has happened? Well, there's a, I mean, one of the things is no, you know, nobody, knows why AI does what it does. Like whenever you hear or read something in the news where they explain how, like they don't, that's not, it's not, they're not, they're making stuff up or they're just, uh, you know, providing metaphors for their own misunderstanding. But the, because I mean, you know, I've talked to the inventors of the transformer, which is the linguistic model. That's the T in ChatGPT, And they, they certainly don't know what's going on. So, um, you know, it it is a very, very mysterious process. But I mean, I I would just say that if your experience of of an AI linguistic model is ChatGPT, which it is for almost everyone on the planet who uses it, I mean, that is a model that has been made to be banal, right? Like it has been, it has been by human reinforcement learning and by design, it has essentially removed anything offensive from it. Right. And that it is. And that's why it provides the most ordinary answer to any given question. Right. Like that's what it's that's what it's trained to do, um, which is a surprisingly useful linguistic function, although not as useful, I think, as people imagine. Right. Um, I, of course, came to this early. Right. So I saw very early and primitive forms of AIs that were not in any way uh, banal. And that had very, very, and that were much more exciting and had much more verb. I, I, I mean, the, the expression would be life, but not, not, that's not really what it would mean. Like, it would, like it, they would just be, you know, there were AIs that I saw where you, that you had a randomness button that you could flick up and down to make it, you know, operate in different ways. That, those were just incredibly exciting models to have. But, you know, they're just not letting those into the hands of the public because the public, you know, is horrible, really. I mean, that's yeah. like that's that's the <laughs> short much. way to put it. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just don't trust the people. Like, just yeah. well, that's what just happened. <laughs> don't give them things. I mean, that's what just happened at Bletchley Park. Like, they the, the AI companies are making a deal with the government so that they the, the public will not really get access to these models in any kind of manipulable way, right? And um, that, that's a choice that's been made out of the public's fear of AI which is just simply a, a, a totally a, a fear without any understanding of it. Why do you think people are scared of AI? The movies. I mean, the movies are like, like, and also there's, there's a gap. There's this really hard thing to understand, which is that um, language is not supposed to be automatable, right? Like language is how we distinguish ourselves from animals. 
and from everything else on earth. I mean, like that's how we think of as like, it is our sacred property, right? It is what we have that nobody else has. I mean, certain linguists like Noam Chomsky would say that it's literally something that only exists in human beings. Right. And so, and so there's this huge, like he literally considers it a, a, a strictly a human trait, which I mean, I think when you, particularly when you look at the AI applications that are starting to figure out how whales talk to each other, how cats talk to each other, I mean, I don't think that that's really sustainable for much longer, that fiction. And so there's this huge, yeah. there's this huge category violation about our, our sacredness as, in, as, as humans that's being violated by, um, by this technology. I mean, it's the same violation that we felt when we found out the earth wasn't the center of the universe. You're kidding me. Well, you guys are in Australia. You guys are at the center of the universe, right? You, but like, like the, um, like the, uh, like the, 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 as science advances, it is, it humiliates human beings, right? Like it, like we find out that we're really not important at all and not particularly special at all. And I think one of the things that's happening here is we're seeing that our capacity to make language is perhaps not, maybe i mean i still think there's something there's there's certainly a distinction between what a computer can do and what a human can do in language i mean vast distinction um but the fact that a computer can do it at all is very is very violating to people right and 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 then plus you add in the movies and like it's all going to end lead to the end of the world and like you know it's not it's not going to lead to the end of the world any more than a pocket calculator is going to lead to the end of yeah, yeah. Oh, like it really is threatening the superiority complex that uh, yeah. that perhaps we, we have at least to, to date presided over uh, the Earth with this kind of thinking. Yeah. Um, but you know, if you spent any time with my dog, it's pretty clear that you know I know what she wants right. by what she tells me. So you know, like I, I think this this sense of uh, um, having a complete monopoly over language and, yeah. and communication is 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 one that um, is clearly going to be fairly short lived. Well, also, I think like it's like our own cruelty is based on that too, right? Like it, it is our like it justifies our own dominion over the earth, right? Like, I mean, if they f- have an AI, like I'm from Alberta, I'm a big steak eater. If they figure out an AI where cows can talk, I mean, what am I going to do, right? Because like <laughs> basically, my distinction is I will eat things that don't talk, like that's. Like that's like it, like that's like that's my line in the sand. I mean, it's a pretty like you know, vegetarians. You know, I know have their all their lines. That's my line. But if they can talk, then we really have to reconsider our whole position in relationship to everything in nature. And that's a that's a that's a huge question that people are not ready for. Well, once we start having AI translators for cows, then you're in real. Trouble. Yeah, we're in. I mean, real real trouble. And like, you know, I mean, the ones with sperm layers are really, they're getting there. Like they will, I, I, I really believe they will get to the point where they can translate sperm whale communication mm-hmm. in a, in a, in a very real way. But, but, um, but of course, what, what does a sperm whale mean actually becomes this whole huge, fascinating question. But, you know, so obviously all of this stuff ties back into literature, right? And like, and what does it mean to make meaning? Right. And to me and and how, you know, that is really just a property of humans. I mean, that's just the one that's the one thing I think when you use AI, you really realize that um, human creativity is indestructible and is and is human because it's just basically a biological function. 
of our, you know, of our particular, you know, nature and our particular, um, you know, like it comes out of our bodies, right? It's not like, it's not a, a, it's not something grander than that, right? It's not like the cosmos is asking for our stories. It's like, no, that's just what we do as a species. And it's something, it's, it's about meaning making. So I guess when you're threatening that sense of like, our right to make meaning of our lives by the use of this, you know, material or this, this, um, you know, this additional technology, you know, perhaps that's where people have the care or yeah. that sort of sense of, oh, you know, they're coming for our jobs. Yeah. I mean, I think there's that, but I mean, also to be, to be fair, like technology has basically ruined the world. And like, we've just come at the end of the social media era, which has just been just utterly destructive and in which engineers have shown exactly zero sense of responsibility to, uh, you know, people on earth like, and, and no sense of solidarity or human or, or collective humanity and no sense of using it for anything larger. So it's, it's totally natural to be highly skeptical of these massively powerful new tools and how they will be used. Like that doesn't seem to me at all wrong. On the other hand, you know, as someone who uses this stuff and who like has, has been using it for a long time, I don't really, it, it, what, what people are afraid of is not what they should be afraid of, right? Like, that's not what it's it, like, it's not going to, there's not going to be Skynet and it's not going to, you know, and lead to like military destruction and all this stuff. Like that's not, that's just not where it's, that's not where it's going. You described earlier that you know, human creativity is indestructible. And I think I'd have to agree with that. But what I do see is a threat is the structures that are upholding mm. potentially this, fragile ecosystem um which is largely based around largely poorly paid or average wage people just doing their best to stay relevant and i can certainly see why ai therefore is is quite tempting for the corporate storytelling giant given that people in particular are its often largest expense well any, I would say that any company that wants to use AI to replace, I mean, anything other than the lowest level of text, you're still going to need a human to check it, right? You're still going to need, a, like, writing is already dirt cheap. Like, you know, I mean, it is like, like it's not like getting people to write things on, on any level is, is very expensive. And if you're, like... If you're going to develop trained models to replace that you're already going to have, I mean, when, you know, the build story about how they were using it to generate news stories, it gave an interview with a dead F1 driver who's suing, whose family is suing them, right? Like, it's not going to replace any screenwriter. I'll tell you that much. Like, and, and, and I don't think even any of the iterations that I have seen or like any of the other more exciting forms of AI are really going to get there either. Some certain low-level tasks are definitely going to be replaced. But the truth is, I mean, I sort of already feel like the creative industries are at the, have been shredded to the point already where, like, I, I'm not sure how much difference AI will make in all in all seriousness. I mean, as someone who's lived through, you know, basically the death of the humanities, all literary institutions have been in total decline my whole life, right? And I, I mean, I guess AI is part of that, but honestly... It's, it's very small compared to the fact that, you know, no one is getting a degree in English literature anymore, right? Like, that's like, that's like much more troubling to me than, you know, the rise of AI. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to um, Eric Newsom, formerly NPR Audible and, mm-hmm. uh, and 
now with Magnificent Noise based in New York City. And he was talking about it's not so much creativity at risk, but it's more mediocrity. Yeah, absolutely. If you are a, the, the people who should be afraid of this are junior lawyers, right? Like if you're, if, if you like, and, and the, you know, the first piece that I wrote that was a warning piece was for, um, undergraduate essay, like professors who read undergraduate essays, because the undergraduate essay, i.e. the embodiment of mediocrity, um, it, it that's what ChatGPT is just unbelievably good at doing, right? And similarly, like low level threatening letters from a lawyer, like a lot of that is just going to be automated, <laughs> right? Like that, like there's definitely no question like that. But if you have a specific task that's new that you want to do in language, I, I don't, I wouldn't trust AI. Like, I mean, I, I'm just saying, and I, and it, like, also if I were a, if I were an executive, I wouldn't trust AI. Like it's, it's just not, it's just too risky. It's, uh, it's interesting to think about how you get from there for, from a junior lawyer into a lawyer who actually knows what they're we're doing or from an undergraduate level to a PhD level kind of quality. If you don't actually have the skills or experience to kind of, to have written all of the terrible essays that you need to in undergraduate level study. That's right. <laughs> well, that is the, cha- I mean, you know, it is a challenge, but I actually think like, you know, I'm not sure the system we had was particularly good. I mean, as someone with a PhD, like, and who's also a writer, like they told me to write bad material when I was doing my PhD, right? Like, like I was told you're writing too well, like you need, so like, Oh, oh yeah. Several times. Like they don't, they don't want you to be good at writing. They want you to be, to fill in particular formulae to an exact point. Is that really a sensible way to write? Like if that form of writing dies, like if academic writing dies, um, what is the loss? Like that's it. Like, 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 you know, and, and, and to make it, to put it in a more positive light, rather than having teaching students to write like machines, we're going to have to start to teach them to write like human beings. And that seems to me like an entirely worthwhile thing to think about, right? Like, and I, and I think, you know, also something will happen quite naturally. So you're probably too young for this, but like when I was a kid, um, when I, when I, when I, when I was an undergraduate, you could still in hand in papers, handwritten. And um, I was there when the spell checker arrived and I was not considered very good at English when I was a kid because I had relatively poor spelling. And then that, that suddenly that stopped being a marker of what meant what being talented at writing was right. Suddenly it was like, well, everyone can spell well. Um, Something similar is going to happen with the formulas of the essay as we know it. Right. Like we're going to, it's what people are just going to be naturally more drawn to what is personally expressive and what seems distinct in a style. Right. Because anyone like before it would be like, well, he can competently make a a three sentence opening paragraph. That's going to be hugely devalued. Instead, it's going to be, can he communicate something that no one else can communicate? Can she do something with words that is not formulaic? And I don't know. I, I'm just going to say, I think that might not be all bad, right? I mean, I think that might actually be kind of exciting. It might actually be Hmm. quite exciting. Like if I were great, if I were grading undergraduate papers right now, the banal formulaic stuff, which before would, I would, would be an automatic A minus. It's going to be worth nothing. It's going to be, can you show me evidence of your own thinking, no matter what the style is? And that's that like, that's, 
that doesn't seem to me like that's a terrible idea. You know, like that seems to me like that might actually be a good habit to inculcate in students. Just out of interest, what was your PhD on? My PhD was on burial rituals and the, the legal changes to burial rituals in the 1560s in uh, England mm. and the, its effect on uh, drama about 30 years later. Boring, oh, historical, wow. grinding work. But I mean, it was it was interesting. And what did you want to say that you couldn't say in that? Oh, well, sometimes I would say lyrical things about graveyards. Ah, I see. Sometimes I would have, uh, I, I would have like passages, you know, you know, I was writing novels. I was still, I was starting, I published my first novel by then already. So I was like, start, you know, I was right. I was writing about like, you know, beautiful passages in Hamlet and so on. And they were like, no, no, this is historical. This is, has to be grinding historical work, which it, I did publish. For those who are departing us shortly Death of an Author by Aiden Machine. I know it's available as an audiobook. Would you describe it as an, a novel or a novello? How, how would you describe it? Well, I don't know. It's 25,000 words. Sort of in between. So, a bit, sort of in between. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's two hours of your life, right? Like, that, I, I mean, I think that's what I'm asking is like two hours of your life. But I mean, it, it, I, I think it has, um, it has a full arc as multiple characters. I mean, I think it's, I, I think it has the structure of an, of, it's, I mean, I would consider it a short novel. Novella is such a weird term because it's not really a genre. You know, it's not really, it's not like a short story where you have different. It sounds ones. kind of exotic though. You know, it's like, Ooh, well, let's go something with that like, it feels, it, maybe, it feels sort of Spanish. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you can also buy it as an ebook. It's got a foreign flavor to it. You can also buy it as an ebook. It was just, we couldn't get it into print because we published it two months. We, I, I, I was commissioned in February. It was published in May. Yes. Okay. Wow. Okay. That's a right. very short space of time. Yeah. Like, I don't know. If, I don't, th- I probably think there hasn't been a book since the 18th century that was written in that speed, written to publication in that speed. <laughs> Um, like you're it, doing it like the level that those great composers t- did during the, you know, they just I mean, I was, I did like break my brain doing it, but also it's like, we just wanted to be first and I was first. Well, congratulations. Uh, we will stick around for a little bit, uh, longer for, uh, for Substack, but, uh, for those exiting now, uh, death of an author by Aiden machine, the uh, pseudonym for, uh, Stephen Marshall. Thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. And, uh, you can catch it through uh through pushkin industries we'll put links and so on into the show notes Stephen, i was listening on the uh, the other day to the radio when there was a, a politician who was on who just returned from a summit on ai regulation yeah. who was talking about how unlike the technologies of before uh you know ai presents some new darker challenge uh, and I know that's also happening across in in the US as well too, um, with uh, with uh, Joe Biden and, and lots of lots of interest uh, are around this. Yeah. Do you see that regulation is the answer here, or is it already so regulated that what are we talking about? Nobody knows what it is, <laughs> right? I mean, here's the thing. Well, that's it for this free edition of the Storymakers Institute. If you'd like to hear the full episode, all you need to do is head to our website, thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com and become a paid subscriber today.